Um, So we're currently going through the Gospel of John. We began in John 1 in in January of last year. So way back in 2017, if you can remember. Uh, We started there and have been working our way through his Gospel. Uh, And so we've just gotten through uh, his um, upper room discourse with his disciples in chapters 13 through 16 and uh, his prayer in the garden in John 17. And we're entering now into uh, his Uh, narrative of the final hours of Jesus's life, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his burial. And so as we uh, get ready, we'll be jumping into John 18. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. If you don't have a Bible and you grab one of the ones next to you, it's going to be on page 773 and 774. Um, If you don't have a Bible, again, you can take that with you. That's our gift to you. Those aren't people saving seats. Uh, Those are Bibles that you can have. Uh, So we will be in John 18. And so, as I said earlier, Jesus is just coming out of this period in John 13 through 16, where he's in this room with his disciples, giving them this farewell address, this farewell discourse, or upper room discourse course it's known as and this is the longest continuous teaching we have of Jesus and so it's it's dense it's heavy these are Jesus's parting instructions to his closest friends and his disciples who will carry this mission this message to the ends of the earth and so it's heavy it's dense and we just then transitioned into John 17 last week where Jesus then leaves the room goes into um, either on the way or maybe he's already close to um, this place outside, but he prays this long prayer. It's the longest continuous prayer we have of Jesus. And again, it's dense. It's heavy. There's a lot of teaching to it. And you'll feel now the transition coming out of John 13 through 17 that we now transition back into John's narrative as he's telling the stories of what's happening here leading up to the events of Jesus' death. And so you'll feel the shift if you've been here the last few weeks from kind of heavy teaching to now John going back to telling stories. But one of the things that's important is that John doesn't want these stories to be read on their own. So he doesn't want us to just dive in and read these accounts of his betrayal or of the arrest or uh, the trial and just read them as they stand. John's assumption as he writes this and sends it out in the first century, he's assuming that you have read the entire book so far and have come to this point because he's going to be inserting details and small little phrases that are meant to be read in light of everything he said in the first 17 chapters. So he wants, he's going to be inserting specific things in here, comments and commentaries and details that he wants people to be able to go, oh, wait a second, that makes sense because of what you said in John 10 or in John 13. Now, granted, they didn't have chapter numbers back then, so they would have just said earlier in the letter. Uh, but John here is wanting to put in these details, and we'll see a few of them here today that otherwise we could just gloss over, but he's putting them here in the context of his entire book to make sure that we don't miss them. They're meant to be read in light of what we have previously read. So jumping into John 18, Jesus has just come out of his prayer where he's prayed for himself, uh, his present disciples, and his future disciples, and now we pick up in John 18 at the end of his prayer. So when, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of whom those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant ear and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And so we have here the very beginning and the shift back into this storytelling of John as he begins these events in this final hours of Jesus' life on this Good Friday. Probably somewhere after midnight in the middle of the night, this is happening. And so we see there are three things in particular I want us to look at uh, this morning as we see and try to understand what it is that John is setting the stage for. So first we're going to look at the place we see John write about in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we'll look at the person in verses 3 through 9. And third, we'll look at the price in verses 10 through 12. That's right. I'll start with P. I'm really excited about this morning. I love alliteration. So we'll be looking at the place, the person, and the price. Uh, So John here is writing, and he begins and kind of sets the scene, as any good storyteller would. And he's saying, here is the place in which this is happening. But look at where he says in verse 1, he's writing, and he says, He went out with his disciples across the brook, and there was a garden. There was a garden. You see, what John is doing is John is going to be putting in these details to make sure that whenever in just uh, the next chapter we see Jesus crucified, he wants to make sure that people reading or hearing this letter read to them understand the significance of what happened on that tree. Because one of the things that I'm not concerned about, but one of the, one of the side effects I've seen of movies, say like The Passion of the Christ which is a fine movie. It it, it accurately portrays what happens. But one of the things, if we're not careful, it can do, we can walk away and feel like the physical torment of the cross was the worst thing that happened to Jesus. Let me tell you that, it, it was horrific. But that is the tip of the iceberg of what happened on the cross. There is so much underneath that. And John, as he's writing and telling these stories leading up, he's going to be dropping in these details to make sure that when it gets to that moment, the readers don't just go, oh, that was horrible and must be so painful. But they get there and they begin to understand, oh, there was so much more than just the death of a man. And so here, John writes about the place where this began, where this story kicks off the very beginning of this passion narrative, and he writes that it was there in a garden in verse 1. Now, it's an interesting word to put in there and an interesting detail, but John puts it in there on purpose. And not just here, we'll actually see he writes about the garden a couple more times in John 19. For it, John also points out that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised in a garden as well in John 19.41. So John mentions three separate times about this garden where Jesus' crucifixion began in the betrayal, where he was actually crucified, and where he was raised. 
Now, one of the things that the reader, as they go through, should pop back into memory and go, man, I remember even in John 1, John is using language that mirrors the creation story in Genesis 1. You see it almost parallels. He's using images of light and darkness and light breaking into the darkness and the God who created all things, that the Word Himself was there. And there's images throughout the entire gospel of this creation story. And here there is no difference. As John writes about this garden, he means for our minds to be taken back to Genesis 2 when there was an original garden and there was another man in that garden. There was this first garden and this first Adam. And now there is this scene of the second garden and this last Adam. We go, that's a strange thing to say, to call Jesus Adam or the last Adam. We get that phrase actually from the Bible. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1545, he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He continues on, he talks about how one came from dust, one came from heaven, and he's comparing Jesus and Adam, and gives him this title of the last Adam. Paul writes, too, to Romans in Romans 5, 12 through 14, says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this first Adam, And death then through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. But yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Listen to this. Who was a type of the one who was to come. And Paul continues on from there in the rest of Romans 5, and he sets up Adam and Jesus side by side and compares them back and forth. From one man came death. From another, for this one man comes life. His disobedience, this man's obedience. Every place where the first Adam failed, this second Adam steps in and he succeeds. It's why we sing uh, a song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. There's this line in there that says that we see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. That's what that phrase comes from. It comes from this idea that as Jesus comes and he steps into this garden, he's coming as a type of Adam, the true and better one, this last Adam who can bring life. And so as we see this garden story begin here in John 18, we see it's the beginning of the passion narrative took place in the garden. The place of his crucifixion took place in the garden. The place of his resurrection, they all took place in a garden. And Paul and John both are making the connection to these people that they're writing these letters to in the early church between Adam and Jesus. He wants them to see the connection. That this first Adam standing in a garden through one act of disobedience and guilt brought death that spread to all those who would be born in him. But this last Adam, standing in a garden, through one act of obedience and innocence, brought life that spread to all those who would be reborn in him. And these two are stood right next to each other. And Jesus enters back into a garden, back where it all started. And so I can't help but think back to a great movie back in 1995. I know that dates me a little bit. But back in 1995 with the impeccable acting of Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo, and Morgan Freeman called Outbreak. 
Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It is a great biological thriller uh, about a disease that spreads around the country, and they're trying to stop it. It becomes an airborne virus, and they get it contained to this one town. It's the, the ethics of do they blow up the town to try to save everyone else. Dustin Hoffman doesn't want them to. Morgan Freeman does, and what's going to happen? Who knows? And the quote for the movie is that extreme measures are necessary to contain an epidemic of a deadly airborne virus. But how extreme exactly? Who knows? Maybe I think everyone's afternoon has been planned in those last few moments as you go and watch. But one of the things that Dustin Hoffman went to do as a scientist to try to fix this, as this epidemic was breaking out, he was doing work to figure out where it began. So the whole movie, he's trying to figure it out, and they end up able to trace it back to this one monkey who was shipped over from some other country, and he had this virus, and it bit somebody, and then it spread throughout. And they were able to track down the monkey where it was, go and find it, because when they found patient zero, where this virus started, they were able to pull from it this then antidote, this serum that could then be given and heal the people who had the sickness. But you had to go back where it started in order to get there. You had to go back to patient zero. And that's kind of what we see John doing here as Jesus enters into the story. He goes back where the disease began, in a garden. And he goes a little bit better than Dustin Hoffman to answer the problem, which is sin and the disease that spread to all of us. Augustine, who was a a bishop of Hippo in 3400 AD, so just a little bit older than me, Um, He said this, when he was reading this text, he said that it was fitting that the blood of the great physician should be here poured out, where the disease of the sick man first commenced. And so it's here in a garden where this disease first happened, that this last Adam came onto the scene. And it shows us how he would be the one to reverse the effects and consequences of the fall and to succeed where the first Adam failed. But who exactly would be the one to do this? Who is this Jesus? How does he have the authority to do what Adam could not? That's what we see next is the person, who this person is in verses 3 through 9. Now there's some interesting details in here, but one of which stands out to me. As Judas went and procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, one of the things that is debated is how many exactly there were. People don't entirely know, but there's a good guess. It was probably between 200 and 600 soldiers that were there with Judas who went to arrest this one man. Now remember, this is in the middle of the Passover feast in Jerusalem. So every Jewish family has fallen on this city and they've all migrated back for the Passover feast here in the city. And so the Roman officials were worried that maybe his disciples and followers would come behind them and kind of create this insurrection. So they send a strong group of soldiers with lanterns and torches and weapons. And all I can think about is the scene from Beauty and the Beast as they go storm the beast castle with their lanterns and torches and weapons. And they go to take this one man. There's two to 600 people going to capture one carpenter. And Jesus, in verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Now look at verse 6. Here's the interesting thing to me. And when Jesus said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Sorry, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Isn't that an interesting detail that John puts in? There's two to 600 men here. What would cause them to draw back and fall? Right? Was there a strong gust of wind that Jesus was able to somehow avoid? Did the earth shake, 
except for the one little diameter that Jesus was on? I don't think so. Now, some people try to explain it away that maybe in the presence of a revered teacher that people would step back and bow. And that, that's just, that's not what, what we see here. These are Gentile army officials coming to arrest a, a rebel against the Roman emperor. They're not going to step back and bow. But notice while John connects, he connects something to them falling back. He said, when Jesus said to them, I am he, then they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, some of your Bibles may have a little footnote right there next to I am, I am he. On the bottom, it says it's the Greek, I am. It's also in verses 6 and 8. So the New Testament was originally written in the language of Greek. And this phrase that Jesus said here, if you just literally translate it, it's just I am. Now, it can be translated absolutely informally as Jesus probably responded, I am he. But there was another meaning that Jesus was getting to here. As they came and they said, whom do you seek? Jesus' answer in the Greek was ego ami, I am. And now all of a sudden, the Jewish readers of John's gospel immediately know what he's talking about. As they go back and they remember in the Old Testament in Hebrews, I mean in Exodus 3, that there was this person that that Moses was talking to at the burning bush. And this person within the bush himself was God. And God, uh, Moses said to God in Exodus 3, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is being commissioned by God to go and release the people of Israel from the nation of Egypt, from slavery. And he says, Listen, if I go and people ask me what your name is, What am I supposed to say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God continues and says, this is my name. He said also, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am the name of God. And from that, we get this derived word in the Hebrew, Yahweh. It's in the Old Testament. Anytime you see in English, all the Lord in all caps, that's that word. It's his name. So precious to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament here in the first century, they wouldn't even write it because it was the name of God. I am. And here, as these soldiers descend on Jesus and they say, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus looks at them and he says, I am. And when he says those words, when he says his name, then all of a sudden they feel power that they've not felt before. And they fall back and they drop to their knees. If the name of Jesus, the authority of a band of Roman soldiers is gone in a moment. They stood no chance here. As Jesus, just with his name, we begin to see the person of who he is. That he is not just a man. He's not just a philosopher. He's not just a teacher. He is God himself. This name that has endured and been remembered throughout generations, I am, has now come to set his people free. Not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And he's walked into the garden where the first Adam fell to be able to do what he could not. God himself coming now with his name, I am, to be able to set his people free. And as I read that and I see that at the name of Jesus, these Roman soldiers fall to their knees. I can't help but think of Philippians 2. 
As Paul writes and says, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And so in that moment when Jesus returns, it is not in his glory, it is not in his might, it is not in his wrath or his splendor that people bow, it is at his name that every person, all of creation, both his children and his enemies will bow. And we see here in John 18 a small glimpse of that. The strongest nation in that time sends a soldiers of two to 600 people to capture one man and they're taken down by a name. Friends, that's the might and the power of our Lord. We do not serve a, a Jesus who is wimpy or limp-wristed. We serve a Jesus who makes armies drop to their knees with a name. That he is truly worthy of that name. He's worthy of his name. Jesus, Yahweh, I am, Yeshua, Emmanuel, God with us. He is worthy. So we see his name shows us his power, but also shows us his control of the situation. Because often, I think, as this situation gets painted, we hear of Judas who betrayed him and who went, and it almost paints this picture of Jesus being like someone who was for, like his plans just didn't work out. Oh, this traitor went and ruined everything he was trying to do. But throughout the gospel, John is writing, and we see people trying to seek, arrest, and kill Jesus, and constantly Jesus is getting away. There's this elusive Christ that nobody can capture. In John 7, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In John 7, 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 7, 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. In John 8, 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In John 10, 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. But then all of a sudden in John 18, we see something different. We see Jesus in verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him come forward. That he knows everything that's about to happen. And he does not draw back. He does not escape. He goes and he actually initiates. That as they were coming, Jesus comes forward and he meets the people who will come and bring him to his death. That will take him to his end. And this is far different from earlier in John 6 when the people came to give him a crown and make him a king, how did Jesus respond? He withdrew and he, his, he hid himself. But here, the people come to give him a cross and he comes forward and he offers himself. He came to this world to suffer and that suffering had finally come. And it's important to see that Jesus was in control of every single second in this story. He knew what was about to happen. He was the I am who had come now to be able to offer himself for his people. He was not some pathetic martyr who was ambushed in the middle of the night. He was not some outsmarted rebel whose plans were foiled by a traitor. No, he was the divine God-man who had come to accomplish his mission. And he was in complete control of every moment that night, knowing exactly what would happen to him. He came forward willingly because his hour had finally come. Now, what did that hour entail? More specifically, what would that hour cost him? What would the price be? We see in verses 10 through 12 what that price would be for this person who came to this place would have to pay this price. 
As they've come to arrest him, Simon Peter draws a sword. He strikes the uh, high priest servant's ear, cuts off his right ear. The, The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus turns and he says to him in verse 11, this is the point of this entire story. He turns and he tells Peter, put your sword into its sheath, for shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So it's a strange phrase. What does that mean? What does it mean for him to drink the cup? This is, again, this is an image that John is pulling from the Old Testament. There are a number of places in the Psalms we see uh, God offering his people his cup of blessing. But even more so, we see this image of the cup of wrath throughout the Old Testament and even into Revelation. In Isaiah 51, 17, Isaiah says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, for you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs, to the very bottom, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah 25. says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. For they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Fast forward to Revelation 16. And we see the same image, that the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so there is this heavy image throughout the Bible of this cup that contains the wrath of God. Not just part of it, it's filled to the brim. And it can't just be drunk in part, it has to be drunk to the very bottom, to the dregs, it has to be drained. And this image of God's wrath being fixed on each person that rebels against him. It's a hard image for a lot of people to grasp. People don't like to think of the wrath of God. Let's focus on the love of God. And so I understand it's hard to think through, but as we step back and we see the whole character of who God is, his wrath is not something we have to be ashamed of. It's not something we have to shy away from. In fact, we see his wrath that is set against us um, is, is something that we understand even in our life today. Right? If one of you came up here and punched me in the face, it would hurt. I may or may not press charges depending on how well you connected and how many stitches I would need. But if somehow you found out where President Trump was later today, you went up to him, walked right past Secret Service, walked up and punched him in the face, I can guarantee you that's going to go a little bit differently than you punching me. Now Why? Why? Because people often, when we think about wrath, we go, okay, I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not doing the same stuff. But the reality is, is that we even understand here in our world, we can do the exact same thing. It doesn't matter what we do. What matters is who we do it against. We do it against the president, it's going to be far worse for you, trust me. Although I don't know, Millie may come at you if you come and hit me in the face, and it may be pretty bad. She can bite hard. So just watch out. But no, the reality is that it is far different based on who we do it against. Friends, it's no different. If if the consequences are that much worse when we do something against the President of the United States, how much greater to the King of all the kings of the earth? How much greater to an eternal, holy, and infinite God? That judgment and that price, that punishment that we will pay will be holy and just and infinite. It is His wrath. Right? We feel that anger whenever somebody comes. If, some, if you walk home and you found out that somebody had stolen your TV, I guarantee you, you would be upset. You would be mad. You would be, dare I say, wrathful. And where would that wrath come from? 
we feel there's this sense of justice that needs to be satisfied. Something was wronged. We know that. We feel that. In extreme cases like this past week, we feel it whenever we hear of another school shooting. We hear it when we watch the court cases of Larry Nasser and sexual abuse. And there's something in us that wants justice. Now, those are extreme cases. But even in cases where somebody comes and steals something that's yours, there's something in us innately that wants to see justice played out. And friends, that desire comes from the very character of who God is, that he is a God of justice. That whenever somebody comes and begins and tries to steal his glory, he's going to respond out of his love for his own glory, his holiness, and himself that he will respond like that to anyone who comes and breaks his commandments. And that is all of our stories, that every single person since Adam, we were born and we were all sinners by nature and by choice. Every single one of us. We've broken God's commandment and we've rebelled against him. And the response that we are holding a cup that is filled to the brim of his wrath for our choices and what we've done against him. And friends, there is no way for us to get away from that. But all of a sudden, there's this image of God himself. I am Yahweh, who has come and walked into the garden. And now he tells Peter, hey, this cup, I'm going to drink it. And this is the image of what we see Jesus going the cross to do. That yes, there was extreme punishment physically. But friends, there was so much worse in this cup. As he went and he drank it, he drank it to the end to the bottom. He drained it. And the wrath that was meant for me, the wrath that was meant for you, and the punishment for your sin was placed on him. And he drank that cup in our place. This is the hope that we have, this bitter cup that was reserved for us. He takes it from our hand. If we believe in him and follow him, he says, no, I will stand in your place and I will become sin. Paul doesn't mince words in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that. So that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He says this sin, your choices, they have to be dealt with because God is just. He can't just wink at sin and brush it away. He has to deal with it. And we see how he deals with it here on the cross. How can he forgive people and not deal with their sin? Well, he doesn't. He deals with each and every one of our sins. But he does it through Christ as he went on the cross. In those three hours, as Jesus bore on himself the cup of everyone who is in him to stand in their place. And he suffered more in those three hours than any one sinner ever will in hell. And friends, that begins to get us into the bottom of the iceberg of what happened on the cross. And that punishment as he stood there and this cup that had been talked about throughout the entire Old Testament was taken from us by God himself. As he goes and he stands in our place and he drinks it for us and he staggers so we don't have to. He drinks it so we don't have to. And we are now able to drink his cup of salvation because he took our cup of wrath. And this is our hope as we see this garden where all of this went wrong and brokenness entered into this world. Jesus re-enters into that story, into that scene as God himself, divine, I am Yahweh, to come and take this cup and drink it. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?
And we see in the other Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, this same image, but it's said a little bit differently. In Matthew, Jesus is praying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And we see Jesus standing there praying, I know what is coming, and I know how hard it will be. I know it will be harder than anything that any human has ever gone through. And so, Father, if there is any other way, let that happen. Let this cup pass from me. He knows the pain that he's walking to. And friends, let me tell you, if you are in Christ, you will never have a clue what that is like. Because he's taken it all. That he walks through death, the valley of death, so that as Christians, we just walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We never feel it like he did. He takes it entirely on himself, and he knows what's coming. And in Matthew, he's praying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But how does he end that prayer? Oh, but Father, but not my will, but yours be done. And friends, listen, Jesus shows us the heart that we should have to the Father especially in our prayers, that we pray. We pray that God would remove things, that he would would come and act in difficult situations, but ultimately submitting and trusting ourselves. And notice the word that he uses, Father, that all of Jesus' prayers are couched in the idea that he's praying to his dad. He's praying to his father, and he's coming and saying, ultimately, this is what I ask you to do. Let this cup pass from me, but ultimately, I know that you know the best thing in this story, that your will would be done, and I trust you. And that trust is founded on that relationship. Father. That Father is the Christian name for God. That he come and adopts us as sons and as daughters. So when we pray, even in hard times, we can come and we say, God, would you do this, but ultimately not my will, but yours be done. And we see Jesus move from that to here in John, this more decided walking forward. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He knows that his hour has come. He knows there is no other way. And he walks forward with a voluntary submission to the Father's will. He offers himself. He is not taken. His plans were not foiled. He was not ambushed. He knew what was coming, and he walked forward to it. When Adam hid in the first garden, when God came to him, here God himself comes forward when the Roman soldiers came for him to walk forward and die in our place. And so the divine Son of God, the I Am, stood here in this garden 2,000 years ago and voluntarily came forward to drink the bitter cup that was reserved for us. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're still holding your own cup, hear the offer of Jesus to come today and to drink it for you. And that offer is free and it is for every person here. If they would come and believe, then they would drink his cup of life instead, his cup of salvation. That life can be yours today if you would just turn and believe in him. You don't have to fear any judgment if you come. That's what Paul writes in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all the condemnation has been dealt with on the cross. That yes, he was killed. Yes, he was whipped. Yes, he was tortured. But he drank the cup. That God's wrath was poured out on him so that we could walk free. And this is our hope. And this is each of our stories. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed 
You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being a God who did not leave your people in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their pain and sin. But God, you came to deal with our greatest problem, separation from you. God, your wrath fixed on us, the cup in our hands, and you came and you took it from us to offer us life instead. God, there was this penal nature to the cross where this punishment was dealt with. And in the midst of that, then you offer us life. God, may that truth, may this cup create in our hearts gratitude and amazement at the extent that you went through to save your people, to save us. You didn't have to. You certainly didn't deserve it. We deserved it. I deserved it for what I've done this morning, for what I've done this week, for what I've done my entire life and turning away from you. But instead, you came and you took my place and you died for me and you died for us. Help us to see and savor what you have done for us and setting us free and offering us life. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.